coming to talk to me about your research. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Thank you. Hi, so I'm Anna from Armenia. And uh, my study that I was presenting as a poster presentation at the ECP20 was a part of a bigger research. And it was aimed at revealing of social cognitive and motivational predictors of the intentions for healthy diet. And there were two questionnaires that were used. The main methodology was based on the theory of plant behavior and uh, the main questionnaire was uh, based on this theory and the treatment self-regulation questionnaire based on the self-determination theory. So the main results uh, here, the regression, multiple regression was conducted and I should probably go briefly to the results and conclusion. So uh, we can conclude that the intention to eat healthy is more likely to be formed and to be carried out where there is a previous positive experience of healthy diet when a person perceives that he has or she has a control over the factors that promote healthy eating and the hindering factors as well as the confidence to carry out the given behavior successfully or when the person realizes gives some added value and consciously wants to eat healthy these are where the main predictors so the combination of these three predictors uh, are more likely to promote the intention of healthy eating this is so briefly to introduce uh, research Thank yeah. you so much. It's really Thank interesting. You. And it also seems Thank like you. there's quite a bit of room for uh, implementation. Yes, yes, because these findings are not, uh, so to say, the final <laughs> decision of uh, research. They are also a step forward. There are a new uh, beginning for intervention modeling uh, for a behavioral change. Wow, that's really exciting. Yeah, I'm you. looking forward to hearing more about that when the when the results come in. Yeah, thank, thank you. you so much thank for, for talking to me. And uh, how are you enjoying the conference so far? Uh, yeah, I enjoy it very much, really. It's uh, great. It is a great opportunity to be in such a great scientific atmosphere and um, such a great opportunity to meet different people, different scientists across the world and uh, have such uh, international meetings which is really a beneficial opportunity for uh, young scientists like I am. <laughs> Well, it sounds really, and I'm really happy that you're enjoying it. Is there anything that you are still particularly looking forward to? Well, I'm definitely looking for a continuously participation of um, ECP20, and I'm also a member of EAPP, so I'm looking forward to you know, further meetings and conferences and everything that could be opportunity like this. Well, thank you so much, and enjoy <laughs> the rest you. of the conference. Thank you very much. Jerome, you gave this very interesting keynote talk on, uh, on the role of career counselling. And I was really surprised to find out that career counselling has such a long history. It dates back to the end of 19th century and early 20th century already. Maybe you want to describe this a little bit. Yeah, sure. I mean, it was connected with migration. You had so many people coming to the States and uh, after we needed to have people to help these people to find jobs. And... Um, like that, career counseling did emerge to help people finding, finding job, jobs in a new country. And it seems uh, that it's widely recognized as a really important thing, career counseling. Uh, so much so that it's, the UN mandates this as a basic human right. Uh, is that correct? I mean, it was included in the right for children because it was closely connected to education. And education 
had to include career guidance and it's still not the case in many countries. I mean, it's, a big, it's still a very big challenge. And uh, now, because of this question of having access to decent work, I mean, one way to get the decent work is to get, to get guidance to, to facilitate this process of, of getting a decent, decent work and decent jobs. Mm-hmm. And obviously, this is a personality conference and this is a personality psychology podcast. So maybe you could describe briefly the role of personality in career counseling. To make a choice, a career choice, I mean, you have to take into account many different aspects. The person has to take into account his personality because it has an impact on how he will feel in a specific work context. It's a, it's a, it's a very important thing to consider. So in, in each, I mean, career counseling intervention, somehow you will address the question of personality. Okay, what goes on in a typical career counseling session? You had this very nice video uh, that you showed and and we uh, in the audience, we saw what was going on, but maybe you want to describe this to our listeners too. Maybe the first step is really to know very well the history of the person because you have to need to understand why he comes to see you and what is the context of his demand. And once you know the story of the person, and in fact, um, when the person tell you his story, he's already redefining his story because you never narrate your story twice the same. And once you have done it, after you have to gain information about who the person is, and in this case, we will use personality inventories and and qualitative uh, assessments for personality, but you also need to have an idea about what he wants to do and and what he can do. Because, I mean, you have to take into account the competencies of the people also into account. And once you have these pictures and the person has his, these pictures, the person has to develop himself some goals, some plans, some scenarios for the future. And after you have to implement them. So it's really to try to link the past, his story, the present, his personality, among others, and the future. So it's not a prescriptive process, but uh, in the process you try to help the person to find his own strengths and limitations and these sorts of things. Exactly, because when you when you come to see a young person and you, you tell him, okay, with the grades you have, you should do this or that, he will never work. Because he has to be himself convinced that it is something for him. And so for this reason, the process is somehow secured by the counselor because it's a safe place you can test different options you can think about different options that seems maybe crazy but the person has to somehow be the first actor of his process personality science is often about these broad patterns that we see in the population but it seems that Korean counseling is really one of these maybe not that many places where we take this broad personality science and actually apply it to individual people in specific situations in their specific context. Is that so? It's one applied field, but you have also organizational psychology with personal selection, for example. But it's true that uh, in uh, in my country, 
career guidance was closely associated with individual differences because at the beginning they were thinking, okay, we can assess people, assess the skills of the people, and after we, can, we know what they can do. And in fact, career guidance started to help people to make this transition from school to work. And basically it was assessment, taking into, into account the grades of the, of the young people and telling them, okay, you should be carpenter, you should be uh, this and that. But now it really moves to a, a kind of a different perspective and really, we really help people, not only young people, but adults, to find new ways to, I mean, enter the labor market, go back to the labor market, to evolve in the labor market and so on. Mm-hmm. Okay, thanks, Jérôme Rossier. Thank you. Cool. Hi, Matei. How are you? Okay, fine. Um, so, where are you from and what are you presenting today at the POSTA conference? So, I'm from University of Zagreb uh, and I'm actually a computer scientist. Uh, I'm specializing in natural language processing. And what we did here, we, would, we wanted to find methodology that could be used to, to filter uh, large corpora uh, to find statements which are closely related to constructs of interest. For example, items in questionnaires, personality questionnaires, or in this case, items in uh, religiosity uh, questionnaire. And the idea is that you use these questionnaire items as hooks, and then you try to uh, pick up fish in um, some semantic space of uh, statements that are quite similar. They have, they have some similar meaning, but they're worded quite differently. Uh, and the newer methods of uh, natural language processing uh, enable us to do that. Uh, and actually, what what you can do with, uh, with this method is that you can find really important for your for your interest uh, statements by users, and then you can display it to raters, human raters, and then they, they can judge these users on on your conceptual interest. In this example, we filtered from what 10,000 comments. We got this to statements which are very quite different to that statements in uh, questionnaires but the human raters were quite able to in high agreement to judge a person as religious or non-religious and then once we got this is, is the uh, our users uh, religious or not then we could compare their uh, big five scores and we f- found differences when we uh, accounted for gender so for example Religious uh, females are less open in experience than non-religious uh, females. The difference between uh, genders is quite, is quite di- different for agreeable women and non-religious men, for example. Okay, yeah. The idea was to use this as a general methodology, so you can use any uh, concept of interest. This is just a use case to, to show that this framework, statement to item matching framework, really works. Thank you so much, that's super interesting. Hi Sonia, how are you? Hi there, um, I am so happy to be here in Madrid and at, to an in-person conference, which is so much fun after so many, you know, a couple years um, being everything remote and I'm really loving the fact that there are people here from like all these different countries, it's very cross-cultural and um, the students that I've met have been like really enthusiastic, so uh, it's been fun, thank you. Thank you.
so nice to talk to you. Can you maybe briefly tell me, tell me a bit about your research? Yeah, uh, hi, and thanks for the opportunity to, to briefly talk about my research. And I'm uh, Laura Buchingen, and I'm currently working on my PhD at the German Socioeconomic Panel in Berlin. And the project I presented here at ECP also relies on data from the German Socioeconomic Panel, and it focuses on the longitudinal associations of life goals and the big five personality traits. So life goals are one way individuals can actively shape their personality in a bottom-up fashion through aligning their behaviors, feelings, and thoughts with their desired end states. So from this perspective, we wouldn't expect personality trait changes to start with the occurrence of a certain life event, but we would expect it to start way before that with the formation of a goal. Surprisingly, however, life goals, unlike life events, have not been intensively researched in relation to personality development. So um, this is where my project comes in. Um, we used a large-scale data set, first of all, to replicate associations that have been found in previous uh, smaller studies. So there are some smart, uh, studies out there, but they're rather small. And also we investigated relevant untested moderators. We could replicate many of the associations found in the smaller-scale studies, so that's uh, good. For instance, we found that um, Participants whose perceived importance of, it, of career success increased also became more conscientious. The strongest effects, however, concern personal growth goals. So, on average, participants whose perceived importance of self-fulfillment increased also became more open. We also found some counterintuitive effects um, that concern neuroticism. So, participants whose perceived importance of a happy relationship or marriage increased became more neurotic. Generally, my research corroborates what previous smaller studies found, namely that uh, there is a reciprocal relationship between life goals and personality traits. In my opinion, however, this is only the first piece of the puzzle. So a promising research avenue that I also hope to contribute to would take into account goal attainment. So do I achieve this goal that is very important to me? And also domain, life satisf uh, domain satisfaction. So am I satisfied with this domain? of my life. Okay, thank you so much for sharing about your research. It sounds super interesting and um, I'm also very curious to hear whenever you have findings of your, your future steps. I'll let you know. How are you enjoying the conference so far? Oh, um, very much. It's actually my uh, first real-life uh, conference since I started my PhD just before the pandemic hit. So for me, seeing all the people that I Googled, um, I, I've uh, gotten to know their work and I've seen their faces on, uh, yeah, on Google, but I, meeting them in real life is, uh, yeah, absolutely great. Amazing. Well, enjoy the rest of your conference and thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Markus Jogela, so you gave this keynote talk today uh, about how people living in different regions are different in terms of their personality traits. Can you say how different people actually are? Is it like if you know where people live, do you know what their personality is like? No, at the individual level, people's place of residence is uh, quite weakly associated with the, with the neighborhood characteristics, whether it's population density, urbanicity, or, or affluence, or something like that. Uh, so, so the the, the signal uh, of personality differences related to regional differences become 
more prominent only at the neighborhood level or the, or the zip code, postal code area level, when you aggregate it at that level, then you start to see more uh, prominent patterns. But the at the individual level, you basically you, you can't make almost any predictions of, of the person's personality based on whether you know, if you know that the person lives in, let's say, urban area compared to rural area. So it's not visible to the na naked eye, you need a microscope or rather like a macroscope to, to see these differences. Yes, yeah, yeah, they, they, they happen, they seem to happen at a higher level. Okay, so where do these differences come from? Why are people different? different? There, there seems to be selection effects working on, on a short term, so people having migrated across different regions within the last years or the last decades, and there might be even some longer historical patterns that may go back to decades of, of uh, migration or some other social structures have, that have uh, introduced different types of people into different regions. So, so selective migration is one of those uh, factors. But it, it, it is also possible that somehow the, the, the areas or the regions and the characteristics of the regions influence people's personality development differently. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there are both ways possible that people with certain characteristics select themselves into certain residential areas, but is it also the other way around, and that, that where you live can influence your personality? Yes, it's, it's possible, even though there, there are much more studies looking at the selection effect compared to the, the personality influence effect, uh, and, and it's much more uncertain. I did a study with Australian data looking at uh, neighborhood affluence and whether neighborhood affluence influences or predicts personality uh, development differently, and it did. So people living in more affluent neighborhoods, they became, became more agreeable and more open to experience over time with the big five, but there, there hasn't been too many studies on personality development and uh, neighborhood characteristics, so we really don't know how, how strong those effects uh, are. And even in your study, the effects were smaller in the direction of from the environment to personality rather than the other way around, right? Yes, the, the overall evidence, if you look at other uh, outcomes such as psychological distress or depressive symptoms, overall evidence for these kind of neighborhood effects, causal neighborhood effects, is actually really, really, really slim. I did a review a couple of years ago on uh, neighborhood effects in uh, psychological distress. Uh, looking at twin studies and, and quasi-causal uh, study designs, and the evidence is mixed at best. So it's it's quite weak. And uh, even though people usually assume that the neighborhood influences your psychological characteristics, such as depressive symptoms and so on, uh, it, it might not. Well, this is quite consistent with the broader personality literature, suggesting that the effects of specific measurable characteristics of environment don't really clearly, at least strongly, influence personality. Yes, it, it seems to go with, the, with that literature quite, quite well. Mm -hmm. But if people choose to move, does it make them more satisfied in the end? Does it, does it pay off? We don't know yet. I mean, I'm, I'm currently carrying out the study, and I'm hoping to get uh, several different uh, study cohorts for that analysis, looking at whether, let's say, people with high extroversion and high openness to experience, who are the people who tend to move more often, whether they become more satisfied with uh, with their life in general, or maybe satisfied with their neighborhood or or some other measures 
uh, let's say maybe their income increases or maybe their uh, other life opportunities uh, get better with, with the move. Uh, but, but at the moment, we don't have that kind of evidence uh, almost at all. My, my initial results with uh, UK Household's uh, longitudinal study suggest that uh, people with higher extraversion, they tend to gain more life satisfaction uh, when they move, but people with low extraversion, they, they don't get that uh, boost for, for their life satisfaction. So that would suggest that people, the personality uh, mobility associations are to some extent at least sort of adaptive or, or beneficial but but for instance in that study openness to experience didn't have the same effect so so maybe maybe they don't gain at least life satisfaction but there are several things that people might gain from moving versus not moving so so life satisfaction is only only one of the measures and surely the reason why people move could also at least sometimes matter if people escape uh, very bad conditions and are forced to move for some other reason it could could necessarily could even work in the other direction right yes exactly so so once you start looking at the psychological basis of migration residential mobility you realize that well actually the movement itself uh, people moving from one place to another it's it's just the surface and then you have all these like how how far people move why they move are they forced to move do they want to move uh, do they do, do they move with a partner do they move with children and so on it, it actually is much more complex outcome that you would uh, expect at the beginning okay thank you this is very interesting thanks again marcus and good luck with the research thank you Barbara. Hi. Um, thank you for the very nice keynote. So can you maybe briefly summarize in a couple of sentences what your research is about? What is the main uh, message? Um, well, the main message at this point is I think that we should um, keep on continue, continuing our work on a, a developmental perspective on personality pathology and especially um, I think the field should be encouraged to work on the developmental value of the uh, alternative model of personality disorders and um, of course we should also put effort in trying to translate our scientific knowledge to clinical practice on that on that topic. Okay, so further development and also more distribution of that knowledge. Yes, I think that the translation to clinical practice is very important. So a clear call for all researchers. Yeah. To not only publish in high standard journals, which is of course very important, but also to make the translation to the field so people can actually start to, uh, to work with, uh, with that way of thinking and describing uh, young people. Okay. okay, very clear. And so you are now ready to uh, enjoy the ECP to the fullest. What are you looking forward to most? Oh, well, uh, now that my keynote is over, I'm of course very relaxed. <laughs> it was very nice to give the keynote, but most of all, I'm looking forward to see our young group of, uh, of PhD students at work here, because, well, they have been uh, conducting their research for two years now, and this is actually the first conference that they can uh, attend. And they are so enthusiastic about it, and I think it's very important for them to network and to really present something for an audience instead of sitting behind their computer yeah so that's why what I'm really looking forward to okay 
Well, I, I wish you a lot of fun uh, watching okay. your piece. Oh, students. thank you. Okay. Enjoy the conference. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Hi, Veronica. How does it make you feel to be the new EAPP president? Excited and thrilled and also a little scared. I have to say that being at the Congress has really solidified my you know, excitement and my interest and my willingness to do the best job I can. And then that's what I'm going to try to do. Of course, I won't be doing this alone because I work with an amazing set of people in the executive committee, Rebecca included who uh, are just such amazing team members and you know and again advancing the society's goals and progress and, and also the, the you know the advancing personality science uh, across the world so i'm very excited and i'm very happy i'm doing this right after the conference again because meeting people in person has you know uh reconfirm how uh connected we are and how this is a team effort I've, of course, got amazing advice uh, about how to do this from uh, uh, both formal and informal advice from previous presidents, particularly Yap, Denison, and Anu Realo. They've both been such amazing presidents, and I, I was able to talk to them, and they gave me lots of very good advice. Uh, we will, you know, we all have our different styles, but I, uh, I again, I just feel inspired by what they've done and uh, committed to, to, to do my, you know, the best job I can. Again, knowing that uh, the association is in, in very good shape, very, very good shape, and that uh, the executive committee is composed of uh, amazing people who are really steering the boat together in, in the right direction, I think, and knowing that all our members feel equally excited about uh, personality psychology and its various forms and definitions, from people doing traits to those doing identity narratives, from a biological genetic approach, cultural, social, health, clinical, doing ideographic, doing you know big data, geographic psychology. It's just, just to me, the, the richness of the field represented in the society and our membership, it never ceases to amaze me, uh, which I, you know, which makes me think that we truly have an amazing association and group of people. So I guess that means I'm excited. The answer is excited and also a little scared. Thank you, Veronica, for your answer. We wish you the best of luck. I'm talking to Arish now, who had a very interesting talk about gender differences and how these gender differences are different in different cultures and how this is all very paradoxical and how she tries to find out why these paradoxical differences are. So maybe you tell us a little bit about your research. Why, what did you do and what did you find? Oh, thank you so much for having me. So we've seen that there are gender differences in personality traits. We see that when men and women are different across cultures. But we also see that these differences is increasing, widening in areas where you do have human development uh, growth and when in areas where you do have gender equality. So you see in areas like Switzerland that the gender gap is even wider than in areas that are low on both. For instance, Burkina Faso. So the interesting thing is, and this is unintuitive, we would expect that they're going to be the same given that the gender roles are closer in areas with economic growth. 
Um, but what we're trying to find out is why is this the case. Um, previously, we know that the economic growth is uh, explaining this, and also gender equality is explaining this. However, uh, there's a correlation between these two. So in areas where you have both, uh, most likely it might be either one that is explaining the variation, and we don't know why. Interestingly, though, we do have countries, a handful, a small handful of countries that are outside this norm, this trend. And for instance, um, Qatar, Moldova are these are from these countries. In Qatar, you find that even though it is highly developed, but the gender equality is similar to that in the Arab states. So it's low on gender equality. However, in Moldova, it's the opposite. It is low on economic growth, but it's high on uh, gender equality. So. Our question is, do we see that um, Qatar and Moldova, either Qatar or Moldova, are going to be similar to Switzerland? If we see Qatar, then we say that it's human development that's driving it. If we see Moldova, then it is uh, gender equality that's driving the variation. And we conducted this study by comparing people from four different countries, including Switzerland, Moldova, Burkina Faso, um, uh, and Qatar. And we found that, interestingly though, that uh, indeed human development, the economic growth of the country, is what is explaining the variation, the gender gap being widened in Switzerland and in Qatar. However, only in areas where you have high human development do we see that uh, gender equality is adding to this gap. Here we see Switzerland having a gender gap that is widest in personality traits, and we see after that Qatar, and then Moldova and Burkina Faso are the sim are similar. So areas with low human development kind of um, have the same gender differences in personality traits. The gap is similar. And what does it mean? So when we talk that the economic growth of a country is driving the gender differences. We do see that in areas with low human development index, given that we have economic hardships, the human psychology is kind of uh, going through um, not being very uh, uh, expressed, let's say. However, in areas where we do have economic growth, here comes additional factors in areas where we have gender equality where the human uh, psychology is more being shown off and here we have the differences between Switzerland and Qatar. Okay, so this is consistent with this idea that for gender differences to manifest to their full extent, yes. you need good circumstances. Yes, the circumstances. Here we have in uh, here we have in areas where you have human development, um, good circumstances. But the better the circumstances, and there we go to Switzerland where you have good uh, gender equality, we even see more the widening of the gap being wider. Okay, thank you, Arich. This is a very well replicated phenomenon by now that there are these gender differences and cultural differences and gender differences. And I think your findings help to explain why this might be the case. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Hi, Kendall. Hi. <laughs> it's nice to meet you. Do you mind telling me a little bit about your poster? 
Sure, so we developed a set of items for assessing 2D rotation ability. It's a little bit difficult to describe what these items look like, but there is a large square um, as the stimuli that is rotated between zero and two times by 90 degrees, and a set of answer options that can also be rotated zero to two times by 90 degrees. So there are two identical uh, stimuli squares, and there's a missing piece in the second one that needs to be filled in with one of these answer options. We used a sample from the SAPA project that administered uh, items assessing many other different abilities like 3D rotation, verbal ability, matrix reasoning, compound remote associates problem solving, propositional reasoning. And so we looked at the unidimensionality of the items, including all of these, and found some dimensionality among the items. There were four lower order factors uh, reflecting differences in the item characteristics, so whether they require rotation of the stimuli, the answer options, or both, um, or neither of them. And we found adequate unidimensionality, but it wasn't great. So after excluding these items, the items with no rotation, since they um, didn't seem to be assessing mental rotation ability, it was just matching the pattern um, shown on one square to the pattern on the second. We found much higher unidimensionality in McDonald's Omega of 0.74, and we found a wide range of difficulty among the items um, when running the uh, item response theory analysis. And then we also looked at how these items relate to various individual differences. So um, we assessed personality using the SAPA personality inventory. The strongest positive correlation was with intellect, closely followed by emotional stability and well-being. And the strongest negative correlations were with anxiety, irritability, and impulsivity. With cognitive abilities assessed using the uh, ICAR, or International Cognitive Ability Resource, we found they were moderately related to general ability and most of the lower order abilities. We did find that 2D rotation ability was a lot less strongly related to 3D rotation ability than we expected, so there was a 0.2 correlation. Um, and just for reference, the correlation with verbal reasoning was 0.19. Uh, and then we looked at the occupations that scored among the highest. And as expected, all these occupations were you know, STEM fields, where 3D and 2D rotation ability are uh, quite important for success in these fields. We also found a rank order correlation of 0.82 between 2D and 3D rotation ability. Um, and then in addition to this, uh, these analyses, we looked at the ONET job characteristics, most strongly related to um, 2D rotation ability. And it was the skills and abilities from the ONET um, that were most strongly and uh, positively and negatively related to 2D rotation ability. Um, and so the most highly demanded skills for the occupations held by those with high spatial ability were characteristics like mathematical reasoning, science, mathematics knowledge, engineering and technology, physics knowledge, and some of the skills and abilities that are least demanded by these occupations were dealing with unpleasant or angry people, customer and personal service, things like working with the public, self-control, and dealing with external customers. Thank you so much. Thank you all for participating. We will see you at ECP in Berlin in two years. Thank you.